I think the most important thing is you shouldn't wait for anybody's permission to do anything. I think that's that's like the one of the most important things. If if you have an idea, just start as early as you can. Find the least least uh, path of resistance and just go for it and, and just do your best work. And uh, it may not work out immediately, um, but you learn. You learn and if you keep learning, if you keep iterating, eventually you get better. So how are you? How have you been? I'm uh, doing great. Uh, it's been a very eventful couple of weeks. I think everybody kind of feels that we are around the world. But, uh, yeah. A lot of things have happened kind of like back to back on my end. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm managing the best I can. I think that's the best way to put it. So you still work from home or you? Yeah, right now. Own? Right now, all my work is from home. Uh, so that's the bulk of what I'm doing. I'm lucky to have like two contract jobs running simultaneously yeah. right now with uh, a few companies doing some mm-hmm. very interesting work. So I can't really complain. I would like things to go back to normal. Don't ask me for when I think that's going to happen. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, no one really knows. <laughs> <laughs> so if somebody yeah. did ask you, you probably won't have an answer. <laughs> yeah, honestly, honestly. I, I, Anybody who who uh, who answers questions like that is probably setting themselves up for disappointment at some point. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, all my work right now is from home and just trying to make the best, build uh, up my profile continually, and uh, yeah. So we'll see what happens in the next few next few weeks. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully good things. At least that's uh, that's what I'm working towards. So in the long run, do you want to continue with the whole media podcasting thing or? Well, the podcast is the big reason why I have those two contract jobs right now. Okay. I, I think it's been a great way to like showcase my own like individual um, skills. When I graduated, I didn't really have like a lot of prospects. Uh, there weren't really like a lot of like employment opportunities. So I really had to like take things into my own hands. And uh, starting the podcast was an excellent way to show mm-hmm. myself as uh, proactive and knowledgeable about the sector that I wanted to work in. Uh, so that got me noticed. And it's gotten me like a lot of uh, good opportunities. So right now I'm working with this Energy Institute in Washington, D.C., okay. um, doing work around nuclear energy. I also guest host for their um, podcast because they have this like really, really big podcast around nuclear energy. And I'm also working with this company in Abu Dhabi. Um, they do events and I'm organizing this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but this like energy dialogue series focused on the African oil and gas industry, interviewing like a bunch of uh, key executives in the sector. And so, yeah, that's that's really the two things that I'm doing right now. And I'm still pushing the bucket for my own podcast. Trying to find a sponsor has been uh, an extreme sport, <laughs> I think. I'm not even yeah. beginning to think about that for myself <laughs> at the moment. Oh, <laughs> you'll like get to, there. You know, let me do this first before. <laughs> you'll get there at some point because obviously you have to think about how does this become sustainable because yes. uh, right now I, I'm doing all the editing. And the reason why I'm doing all the editing is because I'm working from home and I don't have like a, it's like a regular hour job that requires me to like go out all the time. Mm-hmm. But once I do get that, it's going to be a matter of, I, I can't have that same time commitment to put into editing and all the like the other mm. non non uh, non core stuffs like actually interviewing and getting guests like do those really important stuff but all the other things like um, editing posting like those they just take a lot of time and you, I don't really have to do it myself but obviously I can't pay someone to do it right now because yeah. the podcast is generating revenue so like that that's that's really what I'm thinking right now. 
trying to find like a sponsor, trying to find programs that can give us like uh, some sort of funding. So yeah, it's 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 a good place to be in. That means that the podcast has grown to that space where mm-hmm. it's getting that kind of attention and it's getting it's like it, it's 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 healthy enough to um to be able to do something like that. So yeah, so just building on and building on, and uh, we'll see where the next few months take us. I guess. <laughs> At least you you sort of identified what you want to do, and it's in line with you know what you studied and all that. And for me personally, it's been I tell people I don't really have a lot to tell people. So what I can do is to get people who can you know inform folks about various things and then ask them questions. Because I mean, part of why I want to speak to you is this whole energy climate change thing is something I've been quite interested in and being someone who, you know, spends or wastes my time in the whole political realm. I mean, I see the whole divide in a sense. And I know very little about it. I mean, there are many things that I even know about it. So I, I would really want to speak with someone, you know, who does, you know, one of the two things, ask the question, you know, probably that will, that will start, start me on growing and developing myself in that area. Because I, I see that climate change and all whatnot is a big topic, especially when you see a teenager standing in the UN and asking them, <laughs> yeah. how can you? <laughs> so. Yeah, I agree. And uh, uh, I still haven't figured everything out. Like, I don't know exactly what I want to do next. I'm kind of taking each opportunity as it comes. And I started out the podcast really in the same way because it was very intentional intentional move on my part like i said they, they would it wasn't like there were a lot of opportunities just like waited for me after i graduated mm-hmm. so i really had to be intentional like if i, I it, it came to a point where uh if i wanted to stay in the energy industry i had to like prove that i can create something valuable and i'm employable and i have skills that are relevant so uh it was a lot of uh uncertainty this is it's still a lot of uncertainty but i think now i'm a bit more used to it and just used to the idea of, uh, I think the most important thing is you shouldn't wait for anybody's permission to do anything. I think that's, that's like the, one of the most important things. If, if you have an idea, just start as early as you can. Find the least, least uh, path of resistance and just go for it and, and just do your best work. And uh, it may not work out immediately, um, but you learn. You learn and if you keep learning, if you keep iterating, eventually you get better. I think that's been the story of the podcast. It's, it's, it wasn't a hit when you first started. It was a very, very slow process, getting the first five guests, getting the first 10 guests, getting the first 20 guests, getting the first 30 guests. Like, it grows, it grows. And if you do a good job, people notice it, and people, people, you'll find people that would want to help you. But I think that's just a very, very powerful thing. So, like, don't get, uh, don't, don't get discouraged because you don't know exactly what's, what the direction is. Just keep doing the best in the path you're on. And honestly... It'll work out. It might take time. Like there's a lot of patience involved, and it's going to be very frustrating at some points. But it'll work out, even yeah. when if, even when you're getting gas and you're like yeah. maybe making money. If you get asked yourself, like, oh my god, am I wasting my? It's natural. It's 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 it's, it's completely mm-hmm. natural. Talking about the whole global warming, climate changing. I don't know where I should start with that, but maybe for folks who don't really understand the terminologies and all that can you just is there in a sense a similarity that can the words be used interchangeably or is there a difference 
Well, uh, I guess there is a change. Uh, there is a link between them. So I guess I'll start from the beginning and kind of put where my expertise is, and then I can talk about it from there. Mm-hmm. So uh, climate change is being driven by um, greenhouse gas emissions. And that can mean a few different things. So you can talk about carbon dioxide or methane. Basically, it means that um, the, the earth is getting warmer because of human activity. Like that is the, that is the core of the climate change um, discussion because of human activity, because of our industrializations over the past few years, because of our reliance on fossil fuels. We've, we've, we've impacted the, the climate so much that it's changing fundamentally away from how it's supposed to be naturally. And that change is largely driven by human activity. And the point where I come in is that I study energy systems. Like that is, that, that is like my thing. And the reason why energy is so related to climate change is because a lot of our energy generation, I think worldwide around 75% or 80% comes from fossil fuels. And the emissions from um, fossil fuel, um, using fossil fuels to create energy or electricity or whatever it is, whatever the end product is, at some point in that uh, value chain, emissions get released. And those emissions are adding up to um, the effect of climate change and global warming. So now the point is that even though a lot of our energy systems still depend on the fossil fuels, there are still a lot of people around the world that do not have access to energy. And most of them come from developing nations like, uh, like most countries in Africa and Southeast Asia and some parts of South America. So let, let's say you have, uh, you have 2 billion people right now who don't have like 24-7 access, access to energy like they do in most parts of America and North America and Europe. So what happens when these people now want to get more energy? If they follow the traditional pathways of how energy systems have developed in the past, they're going to go through the fossil fuel route. And then you're adding more carbon intensity because they're going to have more emissions if they're burning fossil fuels to generate their, their energy. So it's, 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 it's kind of like we are caught in this cycle. So now that we're looking critically at it, that uh, if you want to reverse the impacts of climate change, we need to address our energy systems and we need to look at the fact that we can't always rely on fossil fuels to generate energy and electricity. So now, if we can't do that, what are the options for those people who, who obviously want to have a better life for themselves? They want to be able to turn on their light, they want to be able to do things, they want to be able to have their businesses get run by electricity and not have to be like huge amounts and have their own personal generating sets. So this is that where our mostly renewable energy comes in and alternative energy sources that are a lot cleaner. And that is why a lot of attention has been put into climate change in general, that a lot of, uh, a lot of factors at play. Obviously, you, you can also talk about the environment, about like specific industries like farming and, um, and uh, raising of animals. So it's, it, it, it's a very multifaceted issue. And for the, for the area that I focus on is the impact of the energy systems on this global um, energy transition and the global effects of climate change. So that's, that's really where I focus in the, the whole conversation. All right. So before we come to the energy systems, in a sense, what I hear from people is, on the one hand, some folks believe that climate change is inevitable. It will always happen. But for some others, I say it's primarily because of human you know, activity, in a sense. And so we have to, in a sense, um, reduce 
the things we do, our activities, so as not to you know, cause this. But some people feel as though no, human activity is not um, what's really, really driving it. And so that's where we have here climate change denial and, and the hoax and all that. Okay. So, <laughs> so, yeah, we are doing for So let's talk about that for a second. First off, there have been multiple scientific studies. I think the IPCC report that was released uh, very recently um, is a very good piece of stuff. Anybody who is interested, I, I think you can find very good summaries of it online. But there are very clear correlations that show that climate change is being directly affected by um, human activity. And it's mostly tied to the amount of uh, greenhouse gas emissions that we release based on the activities that we we generate, like I said previously, you can look at the, the agricultural sector, the manufacturing sector, where it all comes down almost all the time to human consumerism and our energy consumption, because they've all been so tightly tied to the fossil fuel industry. And th these things always emit, because if, if, you, if you look at our regular lifestyle right now, compared to a few years ago, it's so carbon intensive. And the more developed your country is, and the more your lifestyle is comfortable, as you put it, let's say you have a car, you fly a few times a year, you, you, you have electricity in your house like 24 hours a day. Obviously, this, this isn't the reality in many African countries. But even if you look at a country like Nigeria now, if you are wealthy, you're going to have your own diesel generator on most of the time. And it's going to be on constantly. And even if you don't really like know about climate change, just looking at that at the diesel generator, you can see the emissions coming out of it, and you know that those emissions are dangerous. Now imagine that over a long period of time, and those and, and those emissions keep piling up. The cars, the busy cars on the road, almost entirely at transportation, especially in developing countries, is all entirely um, combustion engines. Uh, these things add up. So it's, it's, it's a very clear correlation to see that human activity plays a very big role. And anybody who at this point tells you otherwise, they are not being sincere. Because the effects of climate change, even though it's like such an abstract um, problem, it's something we can see manifest in everyday life. It manifests in terms of like uh, changing in, in, rain, in rainfall patterns. It manifests in terms of drought. It manifests in just different ways in our everyday life. So basically, if, if you're taking a critical look about uh, why, why is it twice as hot this summer as it was last summer. That's just the effects of climate change. Fundamentally, the way a certain region is supposed to operate in terms of what the weather is like, what the rainfall pattern is like, it's going to change over time. And all these things are things that we can see playing out in different parts of the world. And it's, it's something that it's only going to get worse. I don't know if many of the listeners are going to know about uh, all the wildfires that have been happening right now. There's there's a very big one in California. And the reason why all these wildfires are happening, even though like for that region, wildfires are supposed to happen, it's a natural occurrence. But the fact is that since the climate has been a lot drier in those regions, they're having a lot of drought. And drought means they have a lot of dead trees and dead trees are basically filled. So when these wildfires happen, all of a sudden, they have a lot more fuel than they're supposed to have. And it turns into a huge problem. And we are seeing that in different factors in different parts around the world. Uh, last year in Brazil, there were some cases of, of, of wildfires as well, burning up the Amazon. But that was due to human activity because they wanted to have more land to do agricultural um, practices. And so they needed to basically clear up 
parts of the Amazon. And you know, like all these things, you can clearly see that it's it's not the earth doing it itself. It's clearly driven by human activity. It's clearly driven by the capitalistic nature of our activities and us wanting to produce things cheaper and have comfortable way of life. Obviously, that should be the goal. But the point is that if you're going to do it the way countries like the UK did it and, con- and countries like uh, the USA did it, where they rely almost entirely on fossil fuels, they rely on coal, they rely on oil, they rely on natural gas, basically, it's going to have very horrible long-term effects going forward for all of us. So that's why there are a lot of climate activists coming up because young people are seeing this and, and this, is, this is the interesting dynamic that uh, they are seeing the effects about these things. And I think young people are a lot more aware because they don't have that uh, incentive to defend the systems that, that they didn't grow up with. So when they see things and, and they read reports that say that uh, in the next few years or in the next 30 years, we're going to reach a point where uh, the effects of climate change become irreversible and it's going to have drastic effects on the way we live our lives. All of a sudden, it gives people a lot of uh, existential crisis because they begin to worry. And then when they begin to worry and they look around and say that, oh, nothing is changing, like there is no response because it's almost like someone telling you that there's a certainty that it's going to be a horrible thing happening to you in the next 30 years. And then you look around and you see that nobody's taking action of it. And that is why there's been such a huge response. There's been all these huge protests and there's like a lot of key figures that have come out around young people around the world who are protesting and are trying to gain a lot of awareness and going past awareness, a lot of action around climate act, around climate change. And it's, it's, it's all very... Um, it's interesting to see the way it's, it's all been playing out because like I said before, it's a, it's a very multifaceted issue. And most of it as well, just going away from energy has to do with politics because um, uh, I can give many examples, but l- let me just come back to Nigeria because I think that's where like most people will be able to like, understand it better. A country like Nigeria, for instance, now, obviously most of our natural, uh, national revenue comes from the oil and gas industry. So basically, if I tell you that, oh, uh, Mr. Nigeria president, you know oil is very bad and burning of fossil fuel and producing fossil fuel is very bad for the environment. Uh, would you please stop producing fossil fuel? And I, Mr. Nigeria president, go, no, I can't. Like, my people need that money. Like, we need that revenue to go to producing key infrastructure and developing the country up because there's no other option. So that kind of gives you an idea of why that's just one very like very oversimplified example of why we can't just stop using fossil fuels because so much of our current system still relies on the fossil fuel markets, still relies on oil and gas. In many places, it relies on coal. If you look at things like transportation, aviation, um, marine shipping, it's 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 all very closely tied to what the fossil fuel industry is doing. So now there's this thing called the energy transition. It's it's acknowledging the fact that so much of our energy systems are being tied up by the fossil fuel industry. But how do we get away from that? How do we introduce cleaner energy sources like wind, like solar, like, like, uh, like hydropower, like nuclear? And how, how do we make these things an attractive option? So those developing countries that I mentioned, those almost 2 million people who don't have steady access to energy, when they do want to develop their national grid, they don't turn to coal. They don't turn to fossil fuels. They instead turn to cleaner energy sources. But right now, 
those clean energy sources aren't in the place where they can be relied on completely to completely substitute um, the fossil fuel like uh, mode of generation. So that's that's really like a, a beginner level to what the challenge is right now. I mean, that's one of the points um, in the literature I've read about it, that some of these so-called sources of cleaner energy are not really as efficient as fossil as, as coal. Mm-hmm. As I said, so especially for you know African countries and underdeveloped countries, as I said, like Nigeria, a place where you do not have steady power supply and the, the best reliable source of, of electricity and all that is, as I said, the diesel generator and all that. So where, where do we go from here, given that some of these other sources, as you said, are not in the moment as reliable or as efficient as so this is now where we can talk about technology because um, uh, right now, using Nigeria again as an example, most of our energy generation obviously comes from fossil fuels. So we're looking like uh, uh, either we have natural gas uh, power plants generating like large electricity by by local local utilities, or you have your own like personal petrol generator at home or your diesel generator. Basically most of our economy is being fueled by fossil fuels, whether I want to like, like it or not. And that is just the reality because let's say you have a business and you, and you want to make money in Nigeria, you have to have your own generating capacity because you can't rely, you can't rely on, on the government to provide you electricity because mm-hmm. let's say you have a client coming over and all of a sudden there's no light. It's like, what do you do? You just look at each other and say, oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> like, obviously that's not an option. So many Nigerians have become their own, their own generating companies. Mm-hmm. And right now, um, a lot of companies have seen the potential for that. So in Nigeria now, solar, solar technology is becoming a lot more popular. You see people with solar panels and battery storage. And since um, Nigeria has a problem with intermittency, which means that uh, you have power sometimes and sometimes you don't. So people are using that as an opportunity to bring in technologies like inverters, which are very popular right now, and to install solar, solar panels on their house and, and back it up with, with battery storage technology. Because in other places, this can't be used as the... Um, as a sole source of electricity generation. But because Nigerians are used to that intermittent supply, and most of them obviously are going to have a backup generator, like a backup power generating system. Like everybody's going to have their own generator. Like depending on what class you are, you're going to have a diesel generator, a petrol generator, or those small better pass my neighbor generators. Like basically you're going to have something and you're used to the cycle of when the part takes light, you go to know your generator. So people are used to that, that cycle, and that's the consumer behavior in Nigeria. So companies are coming in, and they're, and they're providing you with other backup system options, basically solar home systems. So they install, depending on, on what your capacity is, they can install solar, solar panels on your roof and give you a battery, a battery unit that can accounts for let's say six hours in a day so let's say in the regular day um nepal likes you and they give you eight hours of, of energy and for the rest of the six hours you have your battery like kicking up so those accounts for almost all the times when you likely be home let's say you're in, you're in a busy city like lagos most of the time you're going to be at work or stuck in traffic so that is like how technology is kind of playing a role there so in nigeria right now 
when it comes to clean technology, solar is a very popular option because it's practical to what the reality is in Nigeria. Because people are used to not having a regular uh, power supply. And most people, most people already know the drill that you need to have something as a backup. And right now, solar is playing, is playing that role. But solar technology isn't perfect because most of the problem with solar is that you need to use the electricity you're generating at that moment you're generating it because of one problem, battery storage technology. The batteries are not that good. They can't hold electricity for a very long period of time. So basically, as soon as you store it, there's, the, there's only a set period of time that you can use that power before, before it completely disseminates. And if you want better battery technology at this point right now, it's, it's, it's expensive. So when you look at the costs, the cost of doing it, let's say you buy a generator and you have to buy petrol for the generator and it costs you something, but it costs you that over a long period of time. So let's say over the period of two to five years, you spend like 500,000 naira on your generator. That is over two to five years. But let's say you want to get a solar home system and you want to get solar panels and add and a battery to your specifications. There's a much higher upfront cost. So let's say that uh, you have to pay 500,000 naira over five years to have a, a petrol generator or a diesel generator. And to have a solar home system that can last you for 10 to 15 years, you need to pay 250,000 naira upfront. Obviously, it seems like a more expensive option, but that's because you're not looking at it on the grand scheme. Like, how much money am I saving on the long term? But obviously, like, that, that's a very difficult argument to make when people are seeing that upfront cost. Because upfront, it's going to be a lot more expensive than owning a petrol generator. So companies are trying to find ways to, to kind of meet people where they are and come up with like financing options. Maybe it's, it's pay as you go or like have it in instrumental payments. But then there's a problem in Nigeria as well because you don't have a credit history. You can't just give someone something and someone the solar company and say that, okay, I trust you. They're going to pay me back over the next 24 months and you won't default on your payments or run away. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So that's, that's kind of like where the, the challenge is for people really embracing this technology. It's, it's a much better option in the long run compared to like um, diesel or petrol generators. But in the short run, that upfront cost and the limitations of battery technology is what is really holding it back. And, and this is just in the Nigerian context. If you're looking at other countries where they have a more developed national grid, and they can have things like wind or, or hydropower and they actually have like a more complicated energy systems. They have different things that kind of meet their needs, but that just gives a good understanding of how technology really plays into the mix and what the limitations are and how it's, it really affects on, on our individual consumer behavior. Like what are we used to? What do we expect? What are we willing to pay for it? How, how conscious are we? Because I think it's fair to say that the average Nigerian doesn't care about climate change. You can't make that argument. I can't come to you and say that, oh, we should stop using a generator because it's making bad, it's, it's making noise, bringing out smoke. Those are good arguments, right? But a regular Nigerian doesn't care because one, they're used to the noise of generator. And two, the smoke is just something that's just part of life. But if you come to them and say, oh, uh, I can give you this technology that would save you money in the next five years. 
and doesn't have this problem with uh, you going out to buy uh, petrol and you don't have to deal with like if there's a fuel scarcity or something like that and you don't have to deal with the noise and it's always available and it's your own system and you can control everything like just finding a way to shape the conversation in the way people want to listen to it you, you, you don't want to start preaching to them about climate change and preaching to them about carbon emissions before before you get them to, to like change their behavior and change their consumer habits but you want to find out how do you meet them where they are and start the conversation and find something that benefits them and also adds to the change that you're trying to make on a more global scale so it's like thinking thinking like on a global map mindsets but finding ways you can implement your strategies in a local community and that that's really how you should think about when it comes to climate change and how technology plays a role so in a moment i want to ask you about the whole discussion of climate change and the political um, climate and the activism and the right approach for that but first you mentioned about or you mentioned rather the energy systems can you just explain what is and the roles they, they play yeah so uh Let's just uh, look at energy systems for a second. So basically your energy system is, so let's say uh, you're in a country like uh, France, for instance, now, your energy system is basically how that country generates its electricity or its energy. How does it meet the energy needs for all the citizens in France? So in France, for instance, now, most of their, their generating capacity comes from, uh, I'll probably get the numbers wrong, but I'm just using that as an example, uh, about like 45% from from nuclear and then some 20% ish from natural gas and let's say 15% from solar and wind and let's say 5% from, uh, from, from uh, hydropower. These are just like random numbers I'm throwing out there just, just for a picture. And let's say in Nigeria, uh, 90% of our generating capacity, 90% of our energy mix comes from natural gas and diesel. So if, if you look at these things are just vastly different in different parts of the world. You can have some places where their energy system or their energy mix is based solely around coal. Let's say a country like South Africa, for instance, now, most of, their, most of the electricity they generate comes from coal, let's say like 80% or more. And the reason why energy, your energy system plays so closely to politics, like let's, let's go back to South Africa and use that example. Since so much of their generating capacity comes from coal, that means that a lot of people in that country are employed by the coal industry. And that industry, obviously, if it's employing a lot of people, it has, it has some, some form of political power. So the government cannot just come up and say that uh, we want to stop using coal when coal employs, I'm just throwing random numbers, 2 million people in the country. Any politician that says something like that can assume that he's losing those 2 million votes. So all of a sudden, it's, it's, it goes from a, 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 a technology conversation to a political conversation because your energy system clearly reflects how people think about things in the country. So if you want to change it, you have to think about the political context because let's say like Nigeria, for instance, now again, most of our electricity generation comes from the fossil fuel industry. And the fact that fossil fuels have been so profitable for Nigeria, even though that money might not be going to the right places, but that's like a completely different conversation. Let's just assume that Nigeria was perfect and uh, fossil fuel profits actually went to developing the country. And all of a sudden, those profits are being threatened. If you say that you want people to stop producing from the fossil fuel industry and transition to, to cleaner energy sources, obviously there's going to be a backlash, and rightfully so. 
because it's it's something that the country has become used to and trying to change it too suddenly results in political problems because obviously you have to find ways to to navigate through it and this is where policy comes in so policy is basically um when government makes rules so and policy is something that it's very difficult to change because there are a lot of stakeholders involved there are lots of people you need to talk to so let's say um you are in a i can just give your home for instance now let's just say that you are the third child and you live with your father your mother and your two siblings i wake up one day and you look at the sitting rooms like oh this couch would be a lot better if i move it to this position you can't just wake up one day and just move the couch yourself to a different position you need to first go ask everybody that what do you think about this and that that is just a very simplified way of thinking about technology because if you're looking at on, on a country scale obviously you're thinking about like millions and millions of people in scale in context of nigeria you're looking at almost over 100 million people so how do you balance out like stakeholder benefits and how do you make people realize that making certain changes will be for their own good long term and how do you go ahead enforcing it because just making rules is one thing but actually going out to enforce it is like a completely different conversation so this is just like one of the an, another layer energy policy so why the energy systems and why climate change is it's it's been so difficult to address and another one is energy security which is like an, another interesting angle to look at it because um let's just look at the at the example of south africa the reason why south africa has so much coal like so much of the energy system generated by coal is because they can generate they can produce the coal locally they have coal mines in south africa so it's easier for them they don't have to go to Botswana to to buy coal for them. They don't have to go to Nigeria to buy natural gas. They produce it on their own, so they don't have to worry about uh, some some country getting angry with them for whatever reason and saying that oh we can't sell you coal, or let's say the cost of coal becomes so expensive that they can't afford to buy it at the rate they were because they are producing it locally. But there are some countries like um, like Singapore, for instance, now in Southeast Asia, where. 100% of their, of, their, of their energy mix comes from, about 90% of their energy mix comes from natural gas. And all their natural gas is imported. So basically, they are at the mercy of the, the natural gas price. So basically, when the price is higher and they have to buy it from someone else, it costs them more to give their citizens the same amount of energy. But when the price is lower, it's better for them. But they can't control that price because they don't have that security. So many countries are looking at renewable energy as a way for them to be um, a bit self-sufficient because then they don't have to worry about having a third party supply their energy sources. So that is why another reason why the energy mix can look very different to different countries and why they have an incentive to want to keep things the way they are because I think most companies, most countries rather, want to be um, independent in some way and not have to rely on foreign policy or their neighbors a, a, a bit too much and especially when you look at the the coronavirus pandemic that just happened where international trade got, got affected so so much you never know something like that will happen again so that gives people a lot more incentive to think that how can we produce most of our generating capacity at home without having to think about buying from other people and all these things that's just like two more 
two more components that play into the climate change and energy discussion, that energy security aspect and energy policy aspect that involves pol politics and also just, just a whole bunch of things. So it really um, begins to grow broader the more you look at it. As someone who believes that politics is important because it plays a huge role in our lives, but on the other hand, I, I see that politicians really get anything done. <laughs> there is a tension. Um, I'm not sure to see if, as you said, that climate change is quite obvious and, you know, certain things are required to be put in place to curtail its effect. Yet, what you see is rather than folks coming together, politicians, as it were, to have a conversation on how to, you know, tackle this issue, you see one side pointing a finger to the other one, you're denying this. You don't want to say you're an alarmist. And one side trying to um, define everything in terms of climate change, and the other side completely denying it again. So there is no sense that it's just too pull up a little. How do you, like, you mentioned the policy, it's important. So, how, how do you think in the end that politicians can ever come together and help out in a sense if this is as real as as you say it is hmm. i think uh one of, one of the first thing is that uh it's always going to be a complex issue hmm. and going back to something you mentioned before it's uh people are very uh it's almost like coming to the table when your mind is already made up it's like you've already made up your mind and then you're coming to have a discussion you have no intention of changing your mind. You don't change the other person's mind. And the other person has no intention of changing their mind. They want to change your mind. So that is how many, many conversations that and then wind up in this, in this conversation where somebody is thinking about every issue, every global issue has, has ties for them in their mind to climate change. They might be right, they might be wrong. And then somebody else is thinking that, oh, this is not a big issue. We have other things to worry about. We need to take this, this number of people out of poverty. This population don't have jobs. This is what we should be focusing on. Climate change is not an issue for us. It's only for the countries that have been contributing a lot of the carbon emissions in the past. Like, but the thing is that those, those kind of conversations, they're not productive. Because like I said before, if you believe in it or not, if you like it or not, climate change is going to affect you, your country, and your family. It's, it's, it's not a matter of maybe, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of certainty. So I think when more people actually realize this, that everybody needs to play a part in addressing it. And there are so many factors that need to be taken into consideration. I think you can... You can spend a lot of times in pointless arguments sometimes, and I don't find them particularly um, constructive. But the fact is that action needs to be taken, and we need to figure out what pathway is best for whatever country or organization that you're in right now. It's not going to look the same for, for different places. Everybody needs to have their own unique um, conversation. I can't just say that, oh, because Germany is trying to have like 100% renewables from, from solar and wind that that will work for a country like Nigeria. It's, it's not going to happen that way because those are two very different communities, those are two very different countries. They have different government policies and the citizens of the countries make different consumer choices. So it's, it's going to be a solution unique to 
where your region is and what the reality is where you're from. But the fact is that those choices and those decisions and those actions are not being taken fast enough. They're not even be taken at all in some, in, in some cases. So that is why there's a huge backlash. And honestly, there needs to be that exaggerated um, response because one thing I've realized is even though people might mean well, some people are just very difficult to motivate. And unless you give them something really, really drastic, like you have like 2 million people protesting in the streets like we saw in, in, in a few months ago when, when the young people were, were, were doing all those climate strikes and stuff, all of a sudden, every single world leader has to take notice of that because they're like, oh, wow. All these young people, they're going to grow up eventually. And when they grow up eventually, they're going to vote. And they probably would vote for my party or they would vote for me unless I have a good answer to their questions. And we're beginning to see that in more and more countries because politicians and policymakers are realizing that although these might be young people making noise now, those young people are very good at organizing. Those young people are very intelligent. They are very conscious about world issues and they're very conscious of taking action. When they grow up and they are at the legal age, they will vote. And if you don't have the answers for the questions they're asking, those votes won't go to you. So this goes back to like a political whatever. And I think most of the activists, they realize this. That is why they, they always form political arguments because they know if you want to motivate a politician, the way you motivate him is by making him scared of losing votes. If you want to address a corporation the way you are you you chase them is by going after their their shareholders to make them lose confidence in the country and that affects the generate the revenue uh, potential for whatever that company is so a lot of activists around the world they've found really really intelligent ways and it's it's necessary like they need to do these things because if they don't find the strategies of how to make people listen to you nothing will change and that is just the reality because people think that oh um it's it's going to be a problem for 30 years from now that's why myself is going to be like 50 years from now i'll be dead by then but once they have all these pressures coming at them from different places where people know it's going to hurt them all of a sudden you find that they're a lot more motivated to take slow changes but at least like they're having conversations like you can see right now we're having a conversation about this a few years ago it wouldn't have been something that's possible to have so many conversations about climate change and about energy systems and all these things. So that's really the reality of where we are right now. You hinted at activism. I see a lot of it around, and as I said at the beginning of the conversation, I see one standing in front of you and shouting at them, how dare you? Do you think that this young people, this um, activist, that young people that are actually going about this in the right way. Personally, I have my own. I have my own opinion about that. So, yeah, uh, I I think it's it's going to be fair for everybody to have their own opinions. Um, so on my podcast, the Energy Talk, I've actually had quite a few um, activists uh, just come on and talk, and uh, I think there is a uh, the media represents them in a very certain way. Um, yeah. You have to remember, like, 
let's just bring it back to reality. So uh, I've had uh, three climate activists on the podcast. Um, so one was, I think she's about like 25, 27, maybe like she's a bit older, but the remaining two, um, one was 17 and the other one was 22. These are very, very young people. And the fact that you expect young people like that to be able to like answer like questions that scientists and politicians that are twice their age, three times their age to, to have answers for all these things. It's ridiculous. Honestly, honestly, quite frankly, it's ridiculous because it's, it's a, it's a very stupid expectation to have from somebody who is clearly not, uh, not qualified to address these things. But then again, if you ask me that, Oh, okay. If they're not qualified and if they're young, why should they be speaking about that? About, about, about all these things? Why don't they wait until they're like much older until they talk about these things and when they have the qualifications and when, and when they have the paper degrees and all these things that people can respect? But then it goes back to they don't have that time. Like they see it as a sense of urgency. The fact that action is not being taken right now and they see the, the need to act now, they are going to speak up even though they might not know all the facts even though they might not have all the answers. But they know, like I said before, activism is not anything new. There are strategies that have been proven over the years that work to get people's attention. That is why you can see an activist giving a speech at the UN that has become very, very famous. And that's why you can see them organizing massive protests with thousands and thousands of people. And all of a sudden, they become their own like uh, celebrities in that sense. Because they know how to organize. They know how to get their points across. And it might not be like, uh, obviously, you, don't, you can't have them writing the policies that are going to go passed by government at this stage in their careers. But they will grow. They will learn from their mistakes, just like everybody will. And I think seeing them less like activists and more like human beings trying to fight for the change they believe in drastically changes your opinion about what they're trying to do. Because if, if you look at the, 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 um, the changes they are, they are directly advocating for, then you realize that these are changes that are good. But so what, are, what, are, what are some of those changes? I think it falls under two, under two categories. So the first one is climate justice. And the other one is lowering greenhouse gas emissions. So I'll start with, uh, with climate justice. So climate justice just implies that um, climate change is going to disproportionately affect people who are marginalized and people who don't contribute a lot to the problem and people who are probably in poor regions and people who are minorities and, and all these things. So the fact is that if the world keeps going as it is, countries like this or people like this are going to suffer the most. So let me just give an example right now. China um, and the USA, they account for a lot more emissions, almost 50 times the amount of emissions as the whole of Africa accounts for. Like, just, just, just think about that. They've, over the span of their country's existence, they've generated a lot more carbon emissions. So if, if you're looking at whose fault is it, you can say that, they have a lot more uh, blame in it because they, uh, they emitted more. But obviously those countries are a lot further advanced in terms of development than any African country at this point. 
so because of because the fact that they're advanced and they have like infrastructure that has been set up and they have like a government system that that works relatively well as compared to African nations, they can respond a lot quicker to to climate events, basically. If a drought happens in a part in the USA, people won't starve and die. But let's come back to a country like Nigeria now that has contributed a lot less to climate change. And let's say a drought happens in a local village somewhere, I don't know, in Bonu or wherever. People will probably die just because of, I don't know, rain didn't fall for a year. They don't have a lot of money. They didn't do anything. Like, at most, let's say they have, like, lanterns and they have, like, a small generator they turn on a few times. These people have done nothing, almost, to contribute to global emissions. But globally around the world, it is people like these that will suffer the most. And this is just the reality of it. I'm sorry if that if the example is a bit too grim, but this this is really the core of the argument when they say climate justice. It's the fact that you have companies like uh, like Shell, like Chevron, who have been operating in Nigeria for years and years and years and years. They made massive profits from their oil and gas operations. But if you look at the communities where they're operating, these people are every day they have to build, they have to breathe in bad hair because they're living they're living next to to their processing facilities, their rivers and their and their fishing business has been destroyed because of the oil oil spillage in the region. There are militants in the region because of every there are a lot of reasons. But if you, if you look at the communities that are generating so much money, not just for Nigeria but for a lot of international com- companies, just look at where they are right now. They don't enjoy the benefits of all the profits that's come from years and years of oil and gas export exploitation and this and this this trend is repeated in so many places around the world where the people who contributed the least to a problem are the people who are going to suffer the most and historically they have suffered the most and these are just like small scales but when you're talking about like the effects of climate change these are much bigger scales this is about a lake in a in a village community completely disappearing this is this is about sea level rising. This is about property getting damaged. This is this is about flooding. All these things they are going to affect the people who don't have the financial means to correct them, the most. And that is the first core of the argument. And the second, the second uh, core of what I what I think the argument is is lowering greenhouse gas emissions. Like historically around the world, there are just a few companies that are responsible for a majority of the oil, of the of the greenhouse gas emissions. And these are companies that are in heavy oil and gas activity, in heavy manufacturing activity, in operations that, that involve a lot of farming and raising of, of, of farm animals for, for meat consumption. Like these ones produce a lot more emissions than the rest of the world. But they would say that they are only doing these things because they're trying to meet demand. Like there's a demand for their products and so they have to like produce, they have to raise cows because people like beef, they have to raise pigs for people like pork, they have to raise a lot of chickens for people like chicken, they have to burn a lot of, produce a lot of fossil fuels because people like to drive their cars and leave their lights on 
like all these things. So really addressing these two things in a in a creative way because you have to look at it that these two these two problems that I've identified, climate justice and lowering greenhouse gas emissions, they are not problems that you can just walk in one day and like flip a switch and like everything is taken care of. It's something that requires a lot of system systematic change. And the problem with systematic change is that it involves you affecting a lot of things. And I think that's just the reality right now. So how do you make all these changes in a way that, number one, addresses the most impacted for us, the people who don't have a voice, the people who get affected the most? How do you make the changes where those people are not worse off, but at least they get some benefits from the changes? And how do you make sure that the future systems are so resilient that you don't fall back to where they were before? So that's that's really how a good way to think about it. Like that is, I feel that most of what they do is very very important. Obviously, there are some tactics that I I personally don't um don't agree with, and most people are just doing it because because it's it's just a really nice trend you post Instagram pictures. But whatever, people have different motivations for doing things. Like I can't really point that out as a problem, but that is just the reality on ground. But the core message that they're trying to pass across is an important one and it's a relevant one for my opinion. Finally, I want to add what you think um, your opinion, your honest opinion is the best way to get around this, the best um, ideas to solve these problems that we've identified. Because I see that um, some people suggest that we sort of fly less, we drive less and, you know, and waste certain things less. But, Again, behind that, I see that one is quite not feasible in a sense. And it's really because even those people themselves, those who are suggesting that we fly less, the next day I see them taking <laughs> the flights just from, you know, just a short distance. So it's, they are not even keeping their own um, commandments and rules. So again, I, I see that nations, when they come together, you talk about we think about the France Accord in Copenhagen Accord, they can't keep this these rules they set for themselves. So in the end, some of them, you know, walk out of, of the agreement. So looking at the whole difficulty in the political realm, how activists are going about it yesterday, what, what do you think is the best way to, to, to get around this and what do you think is the best solution? Well, uh, if I could answer that question directly, I'll probably be about $2 trillion richer right now. I mean, maybe <laughs> finally, finally you'll get that job. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's, it's a complex, it's, it's not going to be one thing. I think the first thing you need to realize is that there's, there's no one silver bullet. There's no, there's no one killer policy that's going to like fix all the problems in one day. And just realistically, people, people won't change their habits. Like, uh, people want to be comfortable. Like, who doesn't want to have electricity in their homes 24 hours a day? Who doesn't want to have, like, a transportation system that they can work and rely on and they don't have to worry about? Who doesn't want to have, like, fancy things in their lives? Who doesn't want to travel abroad every now and then? Like, these things that people, are things that people won't, won't stop wanting. It's just not realistic. And if you look at just, just on a global scale, that so many people around the world are still living in poverty and they can't even afford these basic things. All these things that I just mentioned, it's very much a luxury to some people. And that's just the reality. 
So how do we create opportunities where people feel like they're not being um, taken advantage of and they're not being forgotten? It's a difficult one. But I think one of the key things is for people to really understand that their decisions affects things on a global scale. And that might not necessarily mean that uh, everybody needs to needs to stop eating meat or stop flying, because obviously, like I said, people are not going to change their decisions. I, I wouldn't be a vegetarian. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> I exactly. I published a news last, last year on my, on my website. It's about, there was this whole need to stop or reduce our, you know, eating of meat and all that. I was like, no, I like Personally, yeah. I'm not going to be a vegetarian. Same, same event. So. Yeah. And so many other people have that same train of thought. So I think that, like I mentioned before, when I was talking about the whole solar home system thing, uh, meeting people where they are in, in, in the conversation and not trying to, not trying to like change. I think most of the time people try to like change someone's mind. I, I think that that's a very wrong approach. Meet people where they are, like, most people want to live a better life. If I come to you and I tell you, if you live in Lagos, for instance, and I tell you that, oh, um, the, the air quality in Lagos is very bad. Yes, like that is a fact. Like that is just a fact. Like it's because a lot of cars on the road and there are a lot of problems around that. Mm-hmm. Like, or if I come to you and tell you that, oh, uh, it's not so nice not having electricity in your home for 12 hours a day. Like, yes, like that is a fact. That is something that people obviously want to address. So if you can identify problems that meet people where they are and then propose solutions that already coincides with their habits, you're not asking them to change their habits. You're not telling them to do this or not do that. You're just telling them that, oh, there's a better way that you can do things that will save you money. You don't even have to mention like, the climate change um, argument because it, it doesn't really mean so much to them. And that is where technology needs to go. Uh, a lot of clean technology has to follow that 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 pathway. It needs to be something that is just better for them, because people will make good decisions if it comes to like what what benefits them. People want to save money. People want to have um, good health for their children. People want these things. So I think just finding a way to communicate things and having technology really flow in that direction, where it is meeting immediate needs of communities and not like hypothetical problems and not trying to force people to change their habits, I think that'll have a lot more impact on the long run than just uh, having a fancy solution you want to push on people's throats. I think that has been a very wrong approach over the last few years. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time. I'm glad I could help. Glad I could help. Thank you so much, Manuel. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank Keep you. up the good work. Yeah, I'm trying my best. <laughs> <laughs>